Hello, everybody. Welcome to Becoming Better, the podcast dedicated to helping you become a better human being. I'm the host of the show, Chris Bailey. This is episode number 48, A World Without Email. Today, I am thrilled to welcome friend of the show, Cal Newport, back on. Uh, Cal is a computer science professor at Georgetown University and is the author of seven books, including Deep Work, So Good They Can't Ignore You, Digital Minimalism, and now A World Without Email. I feel that should be like said in a movie person voice, in a world without email. All right. His books have sold millions of copies in dozens of languages all around the world. And I think you'll find listening to our conversation that he's just a, a good, genuine, smart guy to talk to and to listen to. So I hope you enjoy our conversation together and be sure to pick up the book, A World Without Email, among the, the amazing collection of others that he has. Welcome back to the show, Cal Newport. How are you? Chris, I'm doing well. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah. Yeah, you too. It's uh it's been t- well, you were the uh first guest on the podcast and now here we are back again. It was uh it was good enough to come back. Is is there a term for this like the founding guest or the uh the, Do you want one? The originator guest? Yeah. 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 I I think in English common law the first podcast guest is uh, owed ten percent of all revenue from the podcast. I think I think that's Blackstone's commentaries had oh. that little bit. So you can just you can just send the check. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, just give me the address. He'll be very happy to know we don't have sponsors. It's just a passion project. So you will get one big hug in the mail. But I know your time is limited with this book launch and stuff. Um, a world without. Email. I, I find it fascinating, especially this book, um, in, in comparison to your others, maybe a little bit, how in your academic work, you study the theory behind distributed systems. And I tried uh, searching what that was before we hopped on the horn today. And I, honestly, I still don't understand it. So you're significantly smarter than me. But it seems that this book, especially reading through it, integrates a lot of what you do on that ac- academic side into it. Uh, would you say out of the books you've worked on so far, that this one has the most overlap with your academic side? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It has the, well, first of all, the accidental overlap in that academia is a job where email is a big problem. Yeah. So, so putting aside <laughs> the specifics of what I study, I think any academic would immediately empathize with the premise of this book. Uh, but you are right. There, there is some actual specific overlaps. I mean, there's there's a piece in there where I actually talk about uh, asynchronous systems versus synchronous systems, which is a big topic in the theory of distributed systems that I've published papers on. And it's very academic. And yeah. it was actually a couple of years ago I published a New Yorker piece on this theory and, and made that connection that this computer science theory actually explains a lot of what's going on with email. Mm-hmm. And it was, a for me, very exciting to bring up a very esoteric topic <laughs> in an academic world to a much broader audience all of whom doesn't understand or care about it, but still. <laughs> so that is very sharp-eyed. Yeah, it was an excuse for me to do a little bit of computer science theory 
in an otherwise business-focused topic. That's something I love about the book is, and I'm sure, we're, we're, I think most people listening to this are kind of productivity nerds like you and me, but the difference between asynchronous and synchronous, what, what, are the, what is the difference between those? And why are things worth breaking down in that way? I, I love the points you made with regard to this. I mean, roughly speaking, when you're doing synchronous communication between two parties, you're both doing the communication at the same time. So it's real time back and forth, right? So like right now we're doing synchronous communication because we are both present for the interaction. You hear what I say, you can immediately respond, I can respond back to that. But then when we do asynchronous communication, the sender and the receiver don't have to be communicating at the same time, right? So I send you something like an email, it arrives in your inbox, you don't have to be there for me to send it. You will read it later when you're ready to send it. So the sending and the receiving don't necessarily happen at the same time. And now in the world of distributed systems uh, theory, this is a really big distinction. So there, there's some distributed systems where the network is highly synchronous. So we know uh, there's very short delays in communication. If I send you a packet, um, I know if you send me one back, I'll get it right away. So we can we can be synchronized and really work things out in a highly synchronized manner. And then there's networks that are asynchronous, like the internet, where like I'm sending you a message I don't really know how long it's going to take to get there. Like it might mm. get there fast or it might take a really long time and I can't really count on how long it's going to take. And in the world of distributed system design, it, it turned out pretty quickly in the 80s, they discovered that, you know, it's actually pretty hard to write protocols for asynchronous systems where you're not sure how long communication is going to take, especially if maybe some of these devices can even crash at some point. And there's a lot of theory that says, all right, this is really difficult. And so your protocols got more complicated. Mm. So if you're in an asynchronous network, you had to have much more complicated protocols to try to compensate for the fact that we're all running at different speeds and the communication is happening at different times. And I don't know when you're going to receive this and you might receive it way after this person receives it. So you need much more complicated protocols to do anything. Whereas in a synchronous network, it's much easier. Oh, I want to send a message to these other computers. They'll get it right away. And they can all send me an answer back and I'll get that answer right away and I can make a decision. And so we had this trade-off where... It's easier to build an asynchronous network than a synchronous network, but it's harder to use an asynchronous network than it is a synchronous network. Mm -hmm. And so what I think is happening in the world of workplace communication, if I can bring this long computer science analogy in for a, <laughs> for a landing here, <laughs> um, is we forget this, that yes, it's more overhead up front to set up a real-time interaction. I got to get you on the phone or go find you. but we're going to be able to interact and communicate and coordinate much more effectively and efficiently once we set that up. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really realize this as we moved our offices towards digital communication. We just sort of assumed, oh, this thing that I would normally talk to you about in person, I'll just do it over email instead. I'll just shoot you a quick email. That, that would be the terminology we had. And we didn't realize no, no, no. If you're going to do this communication through back and forth emails, it's actually going to be a much more involved and complicated communication than if we just took the time to get in front of each other yeah. or get each other on the phone, right? Email doesn't just take those five-minute conversations and change them into a five-second message. It takes those five-minute conversations and transforms it into a dozen back and forth ambiguous messages. And the cost there is uh, higher than we realized. Yeah, I, I love that. And that kind of dovetails with one of the 
things that I think you do such a great job of uh, uh, painting a picture of in the book is just how big of a problem email has become. You write that as knowledge workers, we essentially, and I got a quote here in front of me, quote, partition our attention into two parallel tracks, one executing work tasks and the other managing an always present, ongoing and overloaded electronic conversation about these tasks. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, dovetailing off of the uh, asynchronous and synchronous bit, if you can paint a bit of a picture for listeners uh, of how we're spending so much of our time these days and what you call, uh, and I love this term for it, the hyperactive hive mind. Yeah, so the, the hyperactive hive mind is the whole problem. All right, so the, the hyperactive hive mind is a philosophy of how to collaborate in an office that says what we'll do is just use unscheduled ad hoc back and forth messages to do most of our collaboration. If you need me, email me. You have a yeah. question, shoot me a Slack message. We can work these things out on the fly with back and forth messages, which are predominantly asynchronous because I'll send you this message. You might not be checking your inbox then, but you'll check it later and you'll send me one back and then I'll check my inbox later and see it and I'll send you one back. And this is the primary way that we collaborate. The problem is when you have a non-trivial number of ongoing ad hoc unscheduled conversations going back and forth in these inboxes or on these chat channels, it generates a lot of messages. Yeah. So now there's a dozen different back and forth asynchronous interactions happening, any one of which at any one moment might have generated a message waiting for my response. And so the only way to keep these wheels turning, like to keep progress happening in your office, if this is the way you're, you're collaborating, is you have to check these channels all the time. Yeah. You know, because when the ping pong ball comes back across the net, I can't wait too long before I hit it back because it might take six or seven volleys till we solve the problem. We kind of need to solve this problem this afternoon, so I have to check the inbox a lot or I have to check Slack a lot. And what does that end up looking like? Well, you know, one study I cite was uh, estimating something like 126 emails a day. Uh, another big data set I cite found the knowledge workers studied were checking an inbox once every six minutes. And that is just required if you have dozens of these back and forth asynchronous, ad hoc, unscheduled uh, interactions going on. That's what creates that dual track that you talked about in that quote where, okay, if I have to check this once every six minutes, it's as if I'm doing two things at the same time. I'm constantly checking and communicating with the hyperactive hive mind, and I'm doing all the other stuff I'm supposed to do with that information. I'm writing the code, writing the book, coming up with a marketing strategy, whatever else it is I'm actually supposed to do that produces value. Now, this would be fine if our brain was a multi-core processor because <laughs> we could take one core and have it do that communication and it could set up work for the other core that could then focus on the writing the code or the marketing strategy, but it's not. Uh, it's actually a messy mix of neurons and chemicals that is really slow at shifting attention. It takes 10 to 15 minutes to really shift your attention from one thing to another. So what happens if you check your inbox once every six minutes? You just scramble the whole thing. It keeps trying to switch over to the context of your inbox, but you only look at your inbox for 30 seconds because you're waiting for the ping pong ball to come back and you don't see it. So then you switch back to the thing you're doing. Well, you've just started to shift your attention, aborted that shift, tried to go back to the original thing. Before you can get completely focused on the original thing, you shift it back to your inbox, get exposed to more things, it initiates another shift, you abort it, you come back. It's a catastrophe. Yeah. We can't concentrate, we can't think clearly, we're fatigued, and this makes us anxious. And so this is the whole killer of the modern workplace is all these context shifts that are generated from having to constantly check these inboxes, which brings us all the way back to asynchronous communication. That's why it's not so harmless to just say, well, instead of grabbing you and asking you this question, I'll shoot off a quick email. 
Because that quick email you're shooting off might generate six emails, right? Because of the back and forth. Each of those six emails might uh, necessitate something like five to 10 inbox checks while you're waiting for that email to come in. Well, now that five-minute conversation I might have just had with you in the conversation has generated 60 inbox checks. Yeah. Every single one of which is pulling down my attention, fatiguing me, making me anxious. Okay, now multiply that among two or three dozen such conversations. Well, we basically can't get any work done. I, I love how delightfully nerdy this conversation has been so far. It's it's like a it's like a Neil Stevenson book <laughs> in a way. It's great. So, but playing playing devil's advocate for that idea, um, you know, somebody might say, "Okay, the hive mind, yeah, it's annoying, but that's where work happens." And the alternative to that isn't that just more meetings. What what would you say to somebody who? might have that vantage point. I would say find a better alternative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, yeah, it's a terrible way to collaborate. Let's find a better way to collaborate. We haven't given this any thought, you know? Yeah. We we just sort of stumbled into this hyperactive hive mind because it was convenient and it's early still. Like we've only had these uh, low friction digital communication tools in the office. We haven't had them that long. So we stumbled into this way of collaborating because it was convenient and uh, it's not working very well. So we have to come yeah. up with something better. And it's hard to come up with something better, right? I mean, could you imagine being in a pre-assembly line Ford factory? And you're like, look, this seems kind of slow. We're using this, this intuitive and flexible way of building cars, the craft method, but it's not a very fast way to build cars. We're just putting the chassis on sawhorses, and we have a team of craftsmen at each chassis just sort of hand-building and filing the parts and fitting them together and building the car uh, I think we could, this doesn't seem very fast. And if someone came in like, yeah, but what else are we going to do? You know, like have a, a horse come in and do it or something? That doesn't make sense. Let's just keep using the slow method. No, Henry Ford <laughs> said, no, we're going to do a lot of experimentation and hard work and figure out how to, uh, in the end, improve our productivity by 10x. And I think that's what's happening here is we're coming to the realization of this way that we decided to try working in the early years of having these low friction digital communication tools is not that great. And so now we have to start the hard work of finding better alternatives. Mm. So for that shift away from email for these things, in the book you write about some great strategies for replacing this hyperactive hive mind uh, for ways we can collaborate outside of email. First of all, how can we find the parts of our work that can be done and coordinated outside of email? Is there, is there a way, is there a systematic way of doing so? Well, use your inbox. So we, we can kind of, turn the enemy to our advantage, take a normal day and keep track of the emails you send and receive all throughout the day. And every time you're sending or receiving an email, ask the question, what is the underlying repeated process that this email is servicing? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm, I'm sending Chris an email. What's this really about? Oh, the, I'm, I'm scheduling an interview. All right, so let me write down on a piece of paper, interview scheduling is a process that I come back to a bunch of my work. Okay, yeah. who is this? here's an email I'm sending to someone else. What's going on here? Oh, this is really about um, dealing with website tech issues. Okay, so website tech issue resolution is a process I come back to. Okay, here's one like answering client questions. Okay, here's one uh, approval for marketing documents. Let the emails you're sending and receiving help point out towards you, here's all the things I actually do. Right, These are the things I come back to regularly, mm. and I call these processes in the book, but you can call them whatever you want. Once you see them there, it's like uh, the scales falling off your eyes. Like, oh, I see, <laughs> right? I'm not just like an email person. I'm like a factory that has these 15 you know, production lines. These are the things I do. 
These are the production lines I services, the processes I'm a part of. All right, how are we implementing these? And if you haven't asked a question before, the answer in most cases is probably more or less, yeah, we just throw the hive mind at it. We just rock and roll on Slack and email and figure it out. Now you can start asking for each one by one, not all at once, take the low-hanging fruit first. What might work better than the hive mind here? And the key argument in the book is the thing you're trying to optimize when coming up with these better implementations is not time and it's not complexity. It's instead unscheduled messages, Mm -hmm. right? So you really want to ask the question, how do we execute this process repeatedly while minimizing the amount of unscheduled messages that I'm going to have to, to find and respond to? Because it's these unscheduled messages that create the context shifts to create all the problem. And you should be willing to have a somewhat complex process something that's somewhat a pain, something that maybe sometimes causes small bad things to happen, you should be willing to sacrifice all of that if it's an implementation that means there's very few unscheduled messages this will generate that I have to be aware of and see and respond to. You mentioned your systems for managing email in the book. I think that's uh, an incredible case study for how we can put these ideas into practice. Uh, you, you you mentioned your task board system in the book. What is your personal system right now for managing email? Now, I'm guessing you have quite a few messages coming your way, especially with all the different kind of roles that you have. But I'm wondering if you could break it down from kind of, for, from kind of a high level for how you manage all the incoming communication you have. Well, the, the key mindset shift here is not what system do you use for email, but what are the different ways you've implemented the different processes that make up your professional life. Mm. And so this is how I think about my life is I have a bunch of processes that I return to and have to implement again and again, and this list is shifting. So when I'm in a book launch, there's new things that pop up on there that aren't relevant when I'm not in a book launch. When I was writing uh, this book, I had an administrative role at my university. So there was like new processes popped up that I never had to dealt with before. And now I'm done with that role, so they're gone. Right now I'm on research, a research fellowship, so I'm not teaching. So the the class-related processes aren't relevant, but what I'm teaching, there's three or four processes that pop up about lecture, uh, you know, problem set grading and comments and coordinating with teaching assistants. So I I have an ever-shifting list of processes. Mm. And it's like whack-a-mole. I mean, based on experience and having done this before, I'm constantly going through and being like, okay, how do I implement the new ones? Like, what's popped up on my screen? What's suddenly generating a ton of, of unscheduled messages? Oh, I guess this new process is a part of my life now. All right, how do I actually want to do this? And so what I have is a variety of different process implementations. So, you know, for some of my roles at the university, I use task boards like Trello. And mm. all of my obligations show up as cards on this board. I have a column on there for, okay, I'm waiting to hear back from people on this. And here's things I need to process. And here's things I'm working on this week. I check on those boards, you know, a couple times a week, and then that's when I deal with those issues. And and sometimes I have send-off messages or make phone calls to deal with the issues. But when messages come back, they get moved onto that board and out of my inbox, and I'll deal with it when I check with that on that board. But there's other processes like setting up uh, interviews for my book launch, right? And I, I put together a process with my publicist that is built around the shared Google Doc mm. that I check a couple times a week and okay, here's the different new things that have come up and here's the times that are available or here's their scheduling link. And then I update the document, like I'll do this time, this time, and I already scheduled that one. And then she uh, puts it into a finalized schedule that has all the details I need. And here's a way that we're able to do a lot of interview scheduling without me having to uh, do email back and forth with her. Because that would have been, I know from experience, 
a ton of emails that are kind of timely and they fill up in your inbox and it would cause a lot of context shifts and I don't like that. So I'm willing to do the pain of the shared document. <laughs> and she's willing to put up with the pain of like, okay, it might be a couple of days till I hear back on things, but it's a better process implementation. Yeah. And so my whole life is processes, each of which has its own implementation. Hmm. I love it. Uh, if you If you look back, especially over the course of writing this book and experimenting with the ideas inside of it, has there been one or two changes that you've made with how you deal with email that have made the biggest difference? Yeah, looking back at my own life, um, I think moving, especially my writing career, moving away from emails being associated, addresses being associated with me and instead being associated with types of communication, Hmm. that's a big change. So I don't have a publicly available address that's, you know, Cal at calnewport.com, I have addresses for various types of communication that are relevant to me as an author career. That then allows me to have what I call sender filters, but basically some notes about here's how this channel works. Now, when a channel is just connected to a person, right? So it's, you know, Chris at lifeofproductivity.com or something like this. Yeah. Uh, there's expectations that are built more on social the social interactions and what you would expect from someone you know. But when it's instead you know, episode suggestions at a life of productivity.com or something like this. It's yeah. abstract. And now there could be some like, okay, here's how this works. We, we, we love ideas for episodes. You send them to this address. Um, they get added to a list that we, that we for sure look at, but like we, we don't individually answer messages, you know? Yeah. And people are fine with that. Like, great. There's clarity. I get it. This is how this works. Here's what it's for. Here's what I should expect. I'm not disappointed. There's no weird social friction. Great. Everyone is happy. And you have saved yourself from a, a lot of unsolicited messages that would otherwise there'd be some social pressure to answer. And so that was a big change for me, that moving to non-personalized email addresses hmm. with some notes around each, uh, you know, this is how it works. And that really took the public-facing interactions from something that was very time-consuming for me or very anxiety-producing if I wasn't answering things because I didn't have time to answer into something that's incredibly manageable but still really useful. It's a way for my, you know, my, I can still book gigs and get really interesting links and ideas for my readers. And it's like a lot of really interesting stuff I get, but it doesn't have a huge cognitive toll. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of that cognitive pull, um, w- one thing I notice when I step back from email myself, so I have these intentions of just answering once a day or once every day or two. Uh, But on some level, I I find that I'm almost convinced, uh, you know, that people need me or that I'm more important than I am or or however you want to put it. Um, And so that guilt arises often when I use email. So when somebody's making an active effort to use email less through the strategies in the book, um, as I've been implementing them, something I've been finding is that there is guilt that comes up with emailing less and being less responsive. Uh, how can somebody combat against feelings like that when they do come up? Well, this is a, a common transition a lot of authors go through is the I can no longer answer people's emails transition, which yeah. everyone goes through at some point. <laughs> um, I remember going through this, especially, you know, I used to write student books. And one of the things I really enjoyed was giving advice to students. I I was really fulfilling, right? Students would write me, I'm having this problem. I can't get the grades for this test. I'm stressed out. And I had really good advice to give. And I I enjoyed answering those messages. And then it got more 
and more and I couldn't yeah. keep up. And I started having to put aside like whole half days to try to do it. And it was a real source of anxiety. And at some point I had to shut that down and move over to these non-personal email addresses. But an essay that was really helpful to me at that time is let's, you know, we mentioned Neil Stevenson in passing. Well, Neil Stevenson <laughs> has this great essay called Why I'm a Bad Correspondent. And it was an essay that he wrote for a lot of the science fiction fans who would write him and, you know, can you tell me about this or come to my conference? We're doing this fan event. We could sign a book. And he said, I'm not going to answer your message and I'm not going to come to your conference uh, and I'm not going to sign your book. He's like, and the reason is I was just doing the math on it and I want to have an impact and do good in the world. And if I answer each of these messages, I'm not going to be able to write as many books. And when I write a book it can be out there and have an impact on hundreds of thousands of people. If I am instead answering individual messages, what I'm left with is, you know, a mini smaller number of just individual messages. Yeah. And so I think I'm actually most useful to the world, putting my intention towards writing books that can be largely consumed and do good than I am doing one-on-one interaction. And I can't do both because if I do the one-on-one interaction, I can't write the books. And I think it's a really influential essay. And that really helped me. I mean, I, I wrote about that essay in deep work uh, which was I'd made that transition not too far uh, before I wrote that book. Mm. But I think it's a really useful way of thinking about it. We only have so many cognitive resources, and we only have so much time. So what's the best configuration? What do we want to give to our family? What do we want to give to ourselves? What do we want to give to our work? What do we want to do? We want to give to our community, and uh, there's only so much we can do in each of those places. Good stuff. And this is one of the things I think you do really well in the book is you cover the overarching theory that we should think about email inside of, but you also drill down to that practical, tactical level. If you could provide folks with one or two quick things that they can do uh, after understanding this theory behind email that they can implement right away, uh, what, what are a couple that you find especially uh, helpful for people? Well, I mean, for sure, once you go through this process of writing out all of the processes you're involved in, one of the low-hanging fruits for almost everybody is meeting scheduling. Yeah. Right, because meeting scheduling is very easy in the moment to shoot off a message to say, hey, uh, do you want to grab a coffee? It's easy in the moment, but you have just initiated maybe five back and forth messages, each of which needs five to 10 email checks. Because again, you have to hit the ping pong ball back pretty quickly because you don't want this scheduling to take three days because you're trying to schedule something for tomorrow. Yeah. So you've now made whatever, 50, 25 to 50 inbox checks just to schedule this meeting. So we really underestimate the cognitive toll of, let me just set up a time to do something with you. So a meeting scheduling software Schedule once, x.ai, Calendly, or even just manually, I'm going to take, instead of 30 seconds, five minutes, and list out a ton of available time so it's not in software. I'll just do it in my email and just choose the one that works best for you. It's a huge win. And so people often get a, they, they feel a huge weight off their shoulders once they switch away from back and forth meeting scheduling. And they're surprised at first, but they shouldn't be because they might be saving hundreds and hundreds of inbox checks immediately in their life just by switching over uh, to that software. Office hours is another low-hanging fruit. Twice a week, 90 minutes, I'm available on Zoom, my phone is on, I'm in Slack channel, you know, office hours or whatever. I can answer questions, go back and forth on you. You can now start diverting so many incoming things to office hours. Like, that's great, we should talk about it, grab me at my next office hours. Oh, interesting idea. Um, let's get into it at my next office hours. Yeah, I don't know. Let's. We should figure out when we should do that. Just grab me at my next office hours. And you reduce, again, 
hundreds and hundreds of weekly inbox checks and instead just have this concentrated time where all you're doing is very synchronously and very efficiently making progress. So those are two very simple things. Easy to put into place. Individuals can do it even without buy-in from their bosses. Those alone are going to take the hyperactive hive mind down by, you know, 50% of its hyperactivity. Love it. Love it. A world without email is the name of the book. Uh, hit up your local bookseller. Hit up Amazon if you want. Pick up a copy. I, I highly recommend it if email is something that you struggle with, that you want to tame in your own work, in your own life. This is the book for you. So, Cal, thank you so much for coming on. One final question for you that I ask of everybody that comes on the show. Uh, in the spirit of the name of the show, uh, what is one thing you're working on becoming better at right now? Well, every time I get towards the tail end of a book launch, this answer kind of becomes the same thing. <laughs> so, so it's predictable. Um, but it's usually doing less. So I, I always come out of a book launches saying, I want to get better at, I want to cut things back. Yeah. And really get down to a small number of really hard, useful things and do those things better. So this, this drive towards productive minimalism, less things, mm. more time on those things, better things, but with much less total things going on. I, by the time I get to the end of a book launch, that's always what I crave. And I'm certainly craving that right now. Well, you deserve a break. It's a good book. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Cal. Well, thanks, Chris. So finishing up, becomingbettershow.com is where you can find out how to subscribe to the show. Hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you in a couple Tuesdays. 